0: This podcast was recorded on October 27th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes.
1: All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here, Jeff Sherman, with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are broadcasting from the Double Line offices with a very, very special guest. Uh, it is Dr. Ed Yardini. Uh, people refer to him as Dr. Ed. He's the president of Yardini Research. Uh, he provides global investments for edging, asset allocation analyses, as well as recommend uh, recommendations for investors out there. Um, he has many, many accolades, uh, not short of being a professor at the Columbia uh, Graduate School. He's also held positions at the Fed Board of Governors, as well as the U.S. Treasury. He's an economist with the Federal Reserve uh, Bank in New York, and a, a very distinguished uh, economist uh, at Prudential Securities and uh, EF Hutton. So welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Ed. Thank you very much. Yeah, and so I'd be remiss, too, if I didn't talk about Two of your uh, books that you put out there, right? Uh, I think one was a couple years ago, predicting the markets. uh, The professional autobiography you wrote, and as well as uh, my favorite title, "Fed Watching for Fun and Profit." So um, again, uh, those uh, we encourage our listeners to go look at that to learn uh, more about some of uh, Dr. Ed's insights as well. So, as I said, welcome to the show today, Dr. Ed. So. Yeah, so um, I did uh, uh, was able to go through your book, Fed Watching, and uh, one of the quotes in there uh, that we really glommed onto was you said that nothing is more important than to anticipate the actions of the FOMC. Can you explain why that is, and and what you're implying
2: from that statement? Well, from a policy perspective, there's monetary policy and there's fiscal policy. Uh, fiscal policy is uh, is difficult to. Uh, Uh, to to manage. uh, There's there's a lot of politicians involved. There's a lot of politics involved. As we can see uh, in in the current situation, uh, we did get uh, a remarkable fast response to the uh, pandemic on the fiscal side with the CARES Act at the end of March. Uh, But uh, ever since then, getting another package has been very difficult. Uh, But uh, monetary policy um, uh, can really get its act together very quickly. Uh, There's a committee uh, called the Federal Open Mark market committee, and uh, they sit, they get together uh, about eight times a year and uh, decide uh, what to do about interest rates and about uh, credit availability. Uh, and of course, interest rates uh, are very important in driving the economy, driving financial markets. Uh, so, to that ex- uh, to, so for all those reasons, uh, monetary policy is critically important to uh, the stock market, to the bond market, um, to the extent that the, the Fed controls uh, interest rates.
1: Right and so from that perspective you know use, using the the fed's policy to help you predict markets today uh-huh. what's your what's your inference from the policy today um given, given right. what the tools that the fed has has laid out in these kind of unprecedented times uh, as yeah. well as some unprecedented policies what's that telling you today
2: Well uh, the the book i wrote is uh, very much organized around uh, the, um, the the chairs of the of the federal reserve i found over the years that uh, You really got to pay attention to what what, what all the key officials at the Fed are saying, but nobody's more important than the Fed chair. And uh, I found that uh, they're very talkative and uh, they they tell you what they're going to do and they tell you what they're they're thinking. Sometimes you have to uh, anticipate that they may change their views, but uh, for the most part, uh, uh, what you hear is what you get. And uh, so with uh, the current uh, Fed chair, uh, Jerome Powell, who I call the pragmatic pivoter, because he is very pragmatic, and he's willing to change his views and his mind and his policies uh, as circumstances require. And so uh, uh, Powell's latest statements have made it very clear, uh, infamously, actually, uh, on June 10th at his press conference. He said, uh, uh, we aren't uh, thinking about raising interest rates. We're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Uh, In other words, he he made it very clear that the Fed wants to keep interest rates uh, close to zero for the foreseeable future.
1: So on that note, as you think about that, and I love the alliteration, by the way, pragmatic pivoter, pal, that's very difficult to say many times uh, quickly. (laughs) Um, So since he is such a pragmatic pivoter, uh, do you think he will pivot on the uh, negative interest rate policy that he's been pretty staunch saying that they were not going to
2: pursue that? Great great question i mean uh, the the answer based on uh, the pivot so far and he said two major pivots uh, at the end of uh, 2018 he was basically uh, saying that he was going to be uh, raising interest rates in 2019 stock market took a huge dive in the fourth quarter of 2018 and he started to change his mind late late that year and uh, by 2009 as he got into the year he actually lowered interest rates uh, and uh, in the current situation, uh, uh, about a year ago, before the pandemic, he made it clear that he wasn't a big fan at all of modern monetary theory, which is the notion that uh, the, the fiscal authorities can spend to their uh, as much as they want because they can always uh, borrow in their own currency, and uh, the central bank could participate by buying uh, the government bonds. Uh, so he, he he sounded like he actually hated the idea. And now he's the number one uh, implementer of modern monetary theory. As, as we can see, the Fed now is calling on fiscal uh, authorities to spend more and indicating that they will provide lots of uh, support for more spending by buying the bonds. So uh, it's certainly conceivable that uh, he would uh, go for negative interest rates. But the experience in, in both the eurozone has not been a favorable experience. And he is a pragmatist, he'll look at, at what's going on over there and probably conclude that that's not the way to go.
1: Right. So on, on that front, too, as you think about the Fed's balance sheet being, I, I call it open for business, right, that they're kind yeah. of that idea in. And really, I mean, it's not just that that press conference, but his testimonies in front of Congress, he seems to be really ushering that fiscal side. Do you remember uh, the last time we had a Fed person? That was out there actually arguing for more fiscal policy and kind of admitting that there are deficiencies or or there's a lack of tools left on the monetary front.
2: I I don't recall uh, coming across any of that, and I you know I had to do a lot of uh, digging and writing my book, but my book really is based on my experience of 40 years and watching the Fed, being a Fed watcher for all that time, and no, I, I don't really recall anything like that, and it it, it makes sense that the Fed. Uh, stayed away for commenting on, on fiscal policy because it's always a claim that they cherish their independence from uh, from politics uh, you know they're they're above uh, above the, uh, the fray is the, the way they like to to think of, of themselves and uh, they run monetary policy without any political intervention now of course over the years presidents have uh, on occasions uh, you know tried to bend their uh, their arm and uh, get them to uh, do uh, policy their way. So I think Arthur Burns uh, ca- caved into uh, Nixon a few times. Um, but all in all, the Fed has maintained its independence. But now, to, for the Fed to, uh, on a regular basis, uh, be calling for more f- fiscal stimulus uh, crosses that line. And that means that uh, uh, its independence, I think, has been uh, somewhat compromised. As you know, uh, under Trump, uh, uh, the president, uh, President Trump, uh, several times urged uh, Powell to lower interest rates, uh, and uh, you know Powell basically uh, resisted and implied that uh, he was going to remain independent. But circumstances changed, and uh, basically Trump got got what he wanted with, with, with uh, low interest rates. Trump or anybody else wanted a pandemic.
3: Yeah. So as we're talking about uh, MMT, and then basically the the Fed signaling uh, fiscal policy that they're w- willing to to wave it in, open for business, as Sherman says. I think we can start to say that the Fed has at least monetized the, the fiscal deficit, but how close are we, or are we even there in beginning to to think about monetizing the the total debt? And well, if so, think, you know, what are uh, the implications? Well,
2: uh, you know, I, I don't know about the total debt, but uh, certainly uh, – Virtually all of the debt uh, that's been accumulated over the past year, and certainly since the pandemic and the CARES Act uh, ballooned the deficits and the debt, uh, the Fed has essentially financed it all. Um, so we, we've been monetizing the debt uh, at a ferocious pace here uh, to the extent that we've had a ferocious increase in uh, debt issuance by the Treasury to pay for uh, the CARES Act. Um and to make up for uh, lost revenues as a result of uh, the recession we had for a while. Um, we we do, in fact, have um, uh, the, the Fed monetizing the debt. I don't know that we're going to ever go to the extent of monetizing the whole thing. But, uh, you know, we, once you cross uh, certain uh, lines, um, there's, there's kind of no going back. And uh, we've certainly uh, gone into the realm of modern monetary theory without any vote, Uh, without any discussion, without any uh, debate, uh, just on March 23rd is uh, when uh, uh, Jerome Powell and his colleagues announced that uh, they were uh, uh, going to do what I call QE forever, uh, uh, open-ended purchases of government securities uh, for for the good of the economy uh, to offset the the economic and financial impacts of the pandemic
1: well it's funny you call it qe forever because we went it from qe3 to qe4 and then the sequels right. f right so qe4 ever so anyway b- bad pun there um uh, but w- right. when i think back about it and i look back um, and we rewind the clock about six or seven years ago um isn't this really what ben bernanke was doing at the tail end of qe3 if you recall the expansion of qe3 we were doing approximately 80 billion a month in qe purchases But eerily, the fiscal deficit was running right around a trillion dollars or so. So do you you think that was kind of unlocked during the QE3 episode and it's an extension of that? Or do you actually feel like this is completely different because, as you said, the veracity and how quick uh, this transpired and it was really almost in concert with the CARES Act?
2: Well, I I kind of see this as an evolution. I don't think uh, Jerome Powell uh, really did uh, Anything novel, he just just the the extent to which he uh, he did things uh, is unprecedented. But uh, the the fact of the matter is, the stage for the evolution of uh, monetary policy to where we are today really started with uh, with Greenspan. I mean, the last conservative Fed chair was uh, Paul Volcker, and uh, all he really cared about was uh, inflation, and uh, he was willing to tolerate a very severe recession to bring inflation down. Uh, And then um, uh, Congress in the late 70s passed the Humphrey Hawkins legislation, which created this dual mandate uh, requiring the Fed to keep inflation down, but at the same time, uh, keep uh, unemployment very low. Uh, Sometimes that seems like it's it's hard to reconcile it to, but that was the the law. And ever since then, uh, Greenspan, Bernanke, Yale, and Powell viewed that as a sacrosanct. Um, if Volcker had been uh, Fed chair all along, when the Fed funds rate got down to zero uh, following the, uh, uh, as a result of the great financial crisis in 2008, Volcker said, folks, that's all I can do. Can't do any more. Lower the Fed funds rate to zero. That's it. Uh, instead, under uh, Bernanke, we had uh, all sorts of unconventional monetary policies, which would become very conventional. And uh, so what's what uh, what Powell's been doing is really just uh a lot more of the same policies that we uh, had starting with uh well with Greenspan with the so-called Greenspan put, and then Bernanke with all the quantitative easings.
1: Yeah, uh so it's the Greenspan put, uh the the bearded quant, as some people had called Mr. Bernanke as well, doing his QE. And then Powell is uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna assign your title the pragmatic pivoter. I just love it. Um, but as you think about the inflation side of the equation and you you were trying to you know, say it's very difficult to rationalize keeping a low inflation target with full employment and that's all predicated upon the Phillips curve, which it seems that Jerome Powell has, has really abandoned now the Phillips curve idea, although it didn't seem yeah. to really be working at this point. Um, let's let's talk about the inflation front. And what is your take on the new announcement of the policy that the Fed is willing to to let inflation run above target. So that would fly in the face of Paul Volcker as you're talking uh, too with, with his uh, staunch uh, position on inflation. Yeah. How are you thinking about that and, and its ramifications for both policy as well as overall markets as you think about this new kind of inflation targeting? One, can they get there? But also, how do you think about that? Is it a change in the playbook or is it just really a way of doing more forward guidance by saying it's going to be difficult to get there? We're not going to slam the brakes on this if we start to see inflation. How are you thinking about that?
2: Well, in some ways, Volcker had it easy. Uh, it didn't seem like it at the time, but with the benefit of hindsight, he had the guts to uh, cause a recession to bring inflation down. So uh, uh, Volcker had an inflation problem. And uh He raised interest rates, let interest rates go to whatever level was necessary to break the back of inflation, which really meant that uh, interest rates went and created a credit crunch. Uh, This time around, um, uh, we just don't have an inflation problem. We haven't had an inflation problem for really quite some time because there's some very powerful structural forces uh, that have to do with technological innovation, demographics um, that uh, are keeping inflation down. And uh, there's a lot of global competition even now despite some of the tensions ar- around the world but you know you put it you put it all together and we just haven't had an inflation issue and the fed since um january 2012 has had an official target of getting the inflation rate up to 2% so that's that's uh, a radically different problem than volcker had he wanted to bring inflation down the fed's been trying to get it up to 2% and the ecb the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, have had the same problem, and they also have two percent targets that they haven't been able to get uh, uh, get get up to, uh, and that's with all the unconventional policies we've had since 2008. So, the, the credibility of central banks, and uh, the notion that uh, inflation is a monetary phenomenon, so surely central banks should be able to bring inflation back to two percent just by pumping up the liquidity. It just hasn't worked. Uh so now it's uh it, it's kinda puzzling that they wanna would wanna stick their credibility out, their 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 necks out and say, Well, you know, now we're willing to tolerate inflation over two percent for a while because we've undershot it for so long and my my response is but but you haven't even been able to get it up to two percent. Why do you wanna, you know, claim that somehow you're gonna get it above two percent? So uh, I I think there's a credibility issue.
3: Yeah, and it seems like the credibility has had been on decline. You know, uh, even before Powell, with uh, with some of the forward-looking guidance and the ability to 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 meet it. But perhaps going back to the pragmatically pivoting Powell, you know, that's that's a good way for him to to stay on top of the credibility issue. But I wanted to bring it back to the um, to the to the anticipation, the importance of anticipating the actions of the f m o m c and. Right now, it seems that uh, in the last few statements, Powell had suggested that he was beginning to run out of uh, things to do and wanted to pass the baton off to the fiscal side of policy. Right. I guess the question is, does the Fed really, have they run out of moves to play? Or you know, given that we've taken you know, unconventional measures, turned them into conventional and then introduced new unconventional measures, what else can you do? What other moves are there that the Fed could play?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I think to a large extent uh, they've uh, they they they've been using all their tools, uh, and it's just a matter of uh, uh, the the order of magnitude of uh, of of use. Uh, QE4 or forever, as they call it, is just a continuum from QE1 through QE3, just bigger and uh, and open-ended, whereas the previous uh, uh, programs have been uh, pretty much defined in terms of how much they were going to do and for how long they were going to do it, um, and uh, you know once you've done your policy, put your policy out forever. Uh, what else can you do? Uh, on, on, on that score, uh, I don't think they're going to do negative interest rates, um, but I think I think you're right. I mean that's why they keep calling for more fiscal stimulus, is because in in and in, in those uh, you know c- cries out to the to the Congress and the White House. Uh, they're, in effect, admitting that uh, there's not much more that they, they can do. But look, the reality is they've done a lot. Uh, they've done a lot uh, for the financial system, which was really on the verge of another meltdown in uh, in March. Credit spreads were starting to blow out, uh, widened dramatically. Stock market was taking a dive. And uh, one thing the Fed can can still do is, uh, is cause inflation in asset prices. And we're seeing that in housing. Uh, so I think the Fed is really determined to keep interest rates down because the, the one bright spot in our economy right now is anything that's housing related. Uh, and that clearly uh, is benefiting uh, perversely from the pandemic, uh, from rising crime in uh, in cities uh, and from record low mortgage rates. So I think the last thing the Fed wants to do is to see mortgage rates go up uh, and, uh, and threaten the one area of the economy. Anything housing related that's doing extremely well.
1: Yeah, I, uh, that's definitely something that if you just sat in the middle of the pandemic and said, "Well, housing's going to explode. We're going to see listings up ten, fifteen percent." I mean, yeah. we know that there's a supply and inventory shortage there, but right. I don't think anybody would have called for that seven months ago. So
2: yeah, uh, I, I, I will say, I will say that the the one thing that I expect them to do next would be to uh, uh, officially target the bond yield um, at something under 1% if it starts moving above 1%. Uh, so, um, now let's say we get past, we're going to get past the election and no matter who wins, we're probably going to get another fiscal stimulus package, um, and an economy that's right now looking pretty good. Uh, so, you know, if we get a, if things break uh, in a good way and, uh, uh, we find that, uh, we get a vaccine, um, And uh, we get another round of stimulus. The economy could actually uh, be be hot uh, next year, in which case the bond yield could start rising above uh, 1%. And I think the Fed would, in that case, move uh, and officially say that uh, uh, they're targeting the bond yield at, say, 05 to 0.75%. Because they they have, in their mandate, uh, they have made it clear that they're giving more weight now to uh, bringing the unemployment rate down and creating more employment for more people who tend to be left behind, even when things are good uh, and less weight to inflation.
1: Okay, so with that, now let's um, I think we've we've definitely kind of speculated about the Fed. Let's talk about putting on the forecasting. It's a little more difficult. So, you know, you said that the Fed watching is fun and for profiting. Uh, Let's talk about various parts of the markets then. So how are you thinking about you know equity allocations, and think about the equity market given uh, the setup you've you, you've you've laid out here, especially with the idea that the Fed um, can target like the ten-year keep interest rates uh, neutralized. I, I'll call it neutralized by targeting a number across the curve. We know they can control the front end that's what not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates really does there is it manages the front end of the curve so not just overnight rates but the the bootstrapping to get you out to the yield so how do you think about the equity market today a lot of people have talked about the extreme valuation uh, we've seen right. wall street come out with you know pe ratios based on 2022 earnings you know and going two and three years out to rationalize prices. Right. how are you thinking about that today
2: well with interest rates near zero um I think everyone has to reconsider what is their uh, asset allocation mix, their benchmark. Uh, I I think, uh, you know, everybody's got their own ID, but uh, as a general rule, I think there's sort of been a a view that uh, in a typical portfolio, you you might want to have 60% of the portfolio in equities and 40% in in bonds. Uh, So whatever the mix was that you thought was your benchmark, I think you probably need to have more in stocks and less in bonds, uh, given that bond yields are close to zero. And that uh, uh, unless they go negative, which I don't think they're going to do, you know, the odds are more that uh, bond yields might go up, in which case you would have capital uh, losses on that. Um, If we get another stimulus package, uh, the economy looks better because of a vaccine uh that would be better for stocks and it would be for bonds so that's kind of what i'm thinking um look in terms of valuation we're all walking around kind of like uh hamlet uh you know uh, uh to be or not to be what 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 should valuations be uh in an environment where um interest rates are uh are near zero and uh the reality is uh they could be anything you you want them to be it's it's, it's totally. Uh, You know, I mean, there's no mathematics here anymore Uh, uh, when you're looking at uh, bonds being totally uninteresting and uh, all this liquidity that's being provided by the Fed that's uh, clearly benefiting the stock market.
1: So on on that front, too, you've made the argument about low interest rates shifting, um, you know, kind of you talk about the Fed and asset price inflation shifting one's allocation. Well, let me play a little devil's advocate there. And again, not to criticize the thesis because I think it makes sense. but Why don't you think that we've seen kind of a similar effect, let's say, in Japan with the BOJ having near zero interest rates for decades now, it feels like, uh, or the ECB, who's been targeting a negative, trying to push people that risk spectrum. We haven't seen commensurate performance in the Eurozone or or the Japanese equity markets like you've seen in the U.S. So what do you think is driving that differential? Is there, is there something about this, quote, uh, U.S. exceptionalism, unquote, that people talk about? Is there something special about our stock market that augurs for um, it doing better under that low interest rate regime? Why hasn't it worked as well elsewhere, is is what I'd pose to you.
2: Well, I, I think uh, part of the answer may very well be that uh, European and Japanese investors have been uh, investing in the United States. Uh, I mean, there have been capital inflows, uh, coming into our stock market. But, uh, I, I think our stock market, uh, is, is, is big and diverse. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, uh, world-class, uh, industries with world-class companies, uh, you know, uh, technology, uh, we're still, still at the forefront of, uh, technology, healthcare, uh, industrials, um, financials, uh, you know, uh, and, and so I think to a large extent, it's, uh, because uh, we're still uh, one of the great capitalistic uh, systems in the world. Uh, there's uh, uh, there's really good governance, uh, or at least better than many other countries, with regards to corporate governance. Um, there's a tremendous amount of liquidity, uh, a tremendous amount of innovation. Uh, so I'm not saying that this isn't happening in Japan or in Europe, but uh, it seems that um, there's a lot more opportunities to invest in a wide range of uh, industries that are doing very well even during the pandemic, uh, so the reality is, uh, uh, you know, we we've been promoting uh, stay home versus go global. Stay home meant something different uh, prior to the pandemic. What I meant by that was overweight the U.S. and overweighting the U.S. Uh, in a global portfolio has uh, worked really well uh, uh, during this bull market, which uh, I, I I don't view. The, the, uh, the, the sell-off we had in February and March is uh, a, a, a bear market. I view it more as a, more as a panic attack. Uh, so uh, since the bull market started in 2009, uh, the U.S. has outperformed. And some of that is the um, Magnificent Five, or the Fangs, as, as they're called. Uh, but uh, there's been a broad, broad areas of the, of the market that continue to look very attractive.
1: No, I think that's a good argument, and and kudos to you guys for getting that trade right. Uh, you guys were all over that, and so that that's a, a good kudos to you. Um, you mentioned the the foreign investors as well, um, and I'm thinking about the dollar and the implications with all of this fiscal stimulus. We've seen um, effectively borrowing the money, so printing dollars um, to, to uh, enact these policies. How are you thinking about the dollar? Because it, it just reminded me as you were talking about foreigners coming in and buying, uh, stocks and and, and participating in our market. What do you think the next big move is directionally for the dollar? Um, again, with the backdrop of how much fiscal is there, but also you know the demand side of the equation from foreigners wanting to invest in our market. So how are you thinking about the dollar? Right. To-
2: well, uh, you know I'm I'm hearing a lot of chatter about um, the dollar uh, likely to be in a big bear market up ahead here because of all the. Uh, excesses of the fiscal and monetary uh, uh, policies here, but the reality is, uh, the Bank of Japan uh, and the Japanese government—they're—they're uh, they're doing very similar modern monetary policies as uh, as we're as we're seeing here, and the same goes uh, for uh, f- for Europe. Um, generally speaking, uh, the dollar seems to do best when the U.S. economy is outperforming the rest of the world, and it does worst when um, uh, we're not doing as well as the rest of the world. So in the second half of the 90s, we had a tech revolution. Everybody wanted to invest in tech, and the U.S. was the natural place to be, so the dollar was actually very strong. Uh, then uh, when China joined the World Trade Organization in uh, late uh, 2001, uh, everybody wanted to invest uh, in the global economy and the bricks and commodities and oil in China and so on, and uh, the dollar was very weak. Since 2008, I think China and the United States came out of that uh, mess in much better shape than anybody else. Uh, but uh, the U.S. certainly outperformed, um, and the dollar was very strong. Uh, in the current environment, I think we're going to come out of it better than uh, most other economies. Uh, so I, I continue to believe that uh, I don't see the dollar going much higher, but I think the dollar isn't going down. And um, there's an inverse correlation between commodity prices and uh the trade weighted dollar and the commodity prices have had a nice run up here uh, from their lows, uh, whether we're looking at oil or copper. But I don't know that there's more uh, upside in, in the commodities. And uh, that kind of relationship suggests to me, again, that the dollar probably isn't uh, headed uh, a lot lower.
1: Okay, that leads me into one more topic I have about this. And we've seen uh, more discussion about central banks and their digital currencies. And I look back to, you know, when, when Powell was talking about implementing his policies and the reliance on the banking system. Uh, to be able to be the mechanism to transmit uh, their policies to the economy. We we look at that with the stimulus and how long it took to get checks out to, to make sure that President Trump could autograph them and get them in people's bank accounts. So have we opened the way to create the digital currency more? Um, you know, we, We've heard about this in other regions around the world, yeah. like Sweden, I think the Chinese have done it. But now we've seen the Federal Reserve of Boston talk about an initiative here. One of our portfolio managers wrote a paper on this. How are you thinking about the CBDC? So that's the central bank digital currency. Um, is this a game changer? Is this something? Is this direct monetization? Um, what do you think about that in the Fed's toolkit going forward?
2: Well, I'm, as we don't have bit dollars and bit euros and bit yen uh, already. I mean, uh, bit Bitcoin is a is a, is a interesting idea based on a revolutionary, uh, software technology that uh, uh, seems to uh you know uh, make transactions uh, uh fraud proof, hack proof. Uh, it's it's really quite an extraordinary technology and uh it's inevitable that we're going to have the central banks uh, uh muscled in and say you know we 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 print money, we uh, uh we print it digitally and uh we we're not going to have uh Entrepreneurs creating currencies uh, certainly not in our in, in our uh, home currency. So I, I think it's inevitable, and I think um, the most obvious impact uh, is on uh, criminal activity. Uh, you know, all, all transactions are uh, uh, there's going to be uh, you know digital trail for everything. Uh, so I think um, it, it it could have some impact in in that uh, regard. Um, for for now. Uh, We've actually had a a criminal problem with Bitcoin and that the, uh, r- ransomware uh, uh, has been associated with people saying uh, if, if you want your computer system back you're going to have to pay me in the following account in bitcoin uh so it's it's kind of the wild wild west when it comes to currencies but uh, uh the sheriff's already there uh, and that's going to be the central bankers uh, and they're studying it they're looking at it and I think they're going to start uh competing with one another to uh to to, to have the most efficient uh, digital currency and to make sure that uh, that that it works well so it's it's coming um I, I don't know how it uh i haven't really thought through how it affects uh, things like inflation or economic activity it's just too uh too novel to really come up with any uh real conclusions of how it's going to work
3: Oh, yeah, that's appreciate your thoughts on that. And, you know, to tie this all back uh, together and, you know, to to wind down our conversation today, I wanted to bring it back to the fundamentals. And, you know, we started out by talking about, you know, the outlook and just kind of understanding monetary policy and the way that it it uh, plays with fiscal policy. And then we went into the markets, but bringing it back to the fundamentals and looking at the economy, which is really the crux of of the drivers for, for the policies and and the markets at this point, what is your outlook for the, for the economy moving forward? Um, we you know, perhaps you can start on an assessment of where you think we are today is more uh, fiscal support required actually for the economy to continue to recover or grow and, and what the expectations are for, let's say the next year or so.
2: Well, um, we we've had it, we've had a V-shaped recovery since uh, that we bottomed in April um and the, the the data through october uh suggests that it continued right through october some of these uh regional business surveys that have, that are conducted by the fed for october suggest we're going to have a very strong uh, purchasing managers indexes uh for october when they're released in uh, early november uh the orders data for september uh, suggests that capital spending is coming back uh, remarkably well retail sales all time record high i mean the you know if if uh, if i told you some of these things were going to happen i didn't I, I wouldn't have told you because I wouldn't have expected it but um the, the fiscal monetary stimulus we had was just so rapid and so immense uh and uh you have to combine that with the fact that we had a lockdown recession for 2 months uh and once the uh, lockdowns were restrictions were lifted people had cabin fever and they just ran wild uh, uh, shopping and uh, ordering, and so it's it's been really phenomenal, uh, just how strong the uh, recovery has been. Um, at the same time, I have to say a lot of people are suffering. I mean, it's it's still brutal out there for a lot of people, and the pandemic seems to be going through um, uh, another wave here, uh, creating problems uh, certainly in Europe, where uh, the October numbers, uh, economic numbers, are looking very weak. Uh, because of uh, new restrictions. Um, I think we're going to get a vaccine uh, later this year that will probably be distributed uh, sometime in the first half of of next year. I think we're going to get another stimulus package after the elections, no matter uh, who wins. Uh, So I don't know that the V-shaped recovery remains V-shaped. It uh, could be more of a kind of a Nike swoosh. Uh, But we've recovered so much in such short, short order that I now think, that uh, we should be back to where real GDP was in late 2019 by the end of next year instead of the end of uh, 2022, which was my thinking a few months ago. So it's it's been a, a remarkable recovery, and I think it could continue. And look, if we get a vaccine, which I think we will, if we continue to make progress, and maybe not necessarily cures, but treatments so the people don't die, I, I think we'll get past this. And once we get past this, I'm seriously thinking that uh, we could have what will eventually be described as uh, the the roaring 2020s uh between all the technological innovations that are out there um i, I think um the decade could uh, could could be a very good one remember that the the 1920s uh started with a pandemic in 1918 1919 started with a recession in uh, 1920 and nobody saw any of the technological innovations coming that uh, created the roaring 20s but the uh, There are so many technological innovations that we can see today that uh, have the potential for creating the roaring 2020s that uh, I'm pretty optimistic.
1: Nala, thank you for that. I think that's a great note to end on there because uh, we get mired in in economic policy and things so much. And the one thing I like to always say is never bet against the uh, American spirit and the innovation that we have in this country. And as you said, the technological advances, no one saw them in the 20s and just think about what we've accomplished this year alone so i think it's a great way to end it uh, dr ed we thank you for being here but however before we let you go sam has a favorite part of the show that he'd like to introduce yep. you to so sam kick it off
3: all right and that favorite part of the show is called sherman says Dr. Ed, what I'll do is I'll provide a series of alternating prompts between you and Mr. Sherman uh, to which you will both provide a top of mind response. Uh, And I'm going to start it out on this one with uh, one to Sherman with labor market. Improving. The next one to Dr. Ed, debt monetization.
2: Uh, I think it continues. Um, I think we've crossed the
3: line. So it continues. Rationalization. Sorry. um, Going back to Dr. Ed with the value of forward guidance. It's useful. Sherman, favorite financial acronym. Wow. Actually, wow, it's
1: not the acronym. I'm just trying to (laughs) think. My favorite of 2020 is PUA. Public or uh, the pandemic unemployment assistance. I just like the way it sounds.
3: PUA. PUA.
2: Can I can I answer that too? Yes, sir. M-U, the mother of all melt-ups.
3: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> all right. I'm going to give you another one. You earned yourself an extra one here, Dr. Ed, with 2021. 2021 should be a good year. All right. Back to Sherman. I'm going to throw an acronym, perhaps, right back at you with fate. Tempting. I'm going to put on my French hat here and try to pronounce this uh, for you, Dr. Ed. Laissez faire. Say that again? (laughs) I've killed it. Laissez faire. I I, I don't even know what you're saying, quite honestly. (laughs) All right. There goes my uh, my French speaking, but how about this? uh, Free markets. All for them. All right. And the final one for each of you, zombie apocalypse. 2020. Postponed. (laughs) And then the last one here for Dr. Ed. S&P 500, next move, bull or bear?
2: 3,800
1: by the middle of next year. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue into the end. So thanks, Dr. It was great chatting with you. I think our listeners will really enjoy uh, following your research. So can you maybe tell our listeners where they can get access to your thoughts and get a hold of you and get access to your great research?
2: Sure. Um, Trials are available, four-week complimentary trials at uh, yardeni.com, Y-A-R-D-E-N-I.com
1: okay well thanks again dr ed uh we followed your work for a long period of time so we appreciate all the great insights for our listeners out there don't forget to follow us on the twitter uh our handles at sherman show pod uh you can get some insights here um from from this you can also look at our youtube channel youtube.com backslash backslash double line capital all one word uh you'll see some videos out there some of our podcasts are there and also don't forget to follow now our new Series we have with Ken Shinoda, Channel 11, um, out there on our YouTube channel as well. So stay tuned uh, for the next episodes coming very shortly. And again, we appreciate the time, Dr. Ed. Thanks for uh, giving us all your insights today. And we look forward to chatting with you in the near future. Thank you.
0: audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither Doubleline nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor including in respect of direct, indirect or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Doubleline is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.
1: Copyright 2020 Double Line Capital